Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Our scripture this morning comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and that says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As you guys are grabbing a seat, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids today. You guys can come up here to the front, head to the doors. On this side, we've got preschool. And then over here on this side, we've got uh, K through one in elementary. Teachers should be holding up signs. Uh, and as they are leaving, hopefully that may open up a couple of seats there in the back. So thanks to those of you guys who are standing, make your way in. And uh, again, it's good to be with you. Good to hear your voices as we uh, worship our King Jesus together. Uh, well, excited this morning to uh, continue walking through uh, what we are kind of spending our summer sermon series in uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we're doing this at the King's Church over seven volumes over the next uh, number of years. Uh, I hope it's been an encouragement. I've, I've had fun walking through this book so far with you. And uh, today we are at church number two of the uh, seven churches uh, that the risen, glorified Jesus addresses, and that is the church in Smyrna. And uh, I'm going to say the word Smyrna a lot today, and it's just an awkward word to say. Can we all just acknowledge that up front? Smyrna, the Smyrnians, there's a lot of weird ways to say that, so we're just going to get comfortable with the uncomfortability of that word. Uh, Let me begin this morning by asking you this, though. Uh, Who are the heroes of our day and age? If I had to ask you who some of the heroes are of our culture, uh, who would come to mind? Who are the models that as a people we aspire to follow and to be like? Uh, If we maybe expand this beyond just the walls of the church for a minute, I think in our culture our heroes are often athletes, Right, they're often entertainers, maybe they're actors or musicians. Uh, they can be social media influencers, maybe millionaires, the, the successful. Uh, maybe they're politicians, though that's a tough, that's a tough road to walk, right? Uh, often, our heroes, at least from an American standpoint, are those that kind of defiantly break through great barriers and obstacles. They uh, live the American dream. They attain the good life and power and fame, and they become sort of a model that we as a culture become a bit obsessed with and want to follow. 
Now, lest we sit, by the way, in judgment over that thinking, uh, even in the church, we can have some kind of hero complexes, can't we? Particular pastors or ministries or worship groups. And if we're honest, sometimes those values reflect more of the culture than the scriptures. But I want to ask that question this week, because as I've been studying this passage in Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna, I am reminded of a story about a guy named Polycarp. Now, Polycarp is not a fish, okay? Carp is a fish, Polycarp, a man. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop in Smyrna in the second century, the very church that's being addressed in our text today. And Polycarp was a direct disciple of John the Apostle, the one who is recording these visions in the book of Revelation. In fact, because we know Polycarp's story, it is very likely that he was in the room when the book of Revelation was opened up and read for the church in Smyrna for the first time. And here's why I've been thinking about Polycarp. Uh, He was considered a hero in the early church. You see, for the first 300 years of the church, the heroes were martyrs, those who died for their faith, those who, despite great opposition and even at the cost of their very life, were faithful to Christ to the end. So Polycarp was 86 years old when he was arrested by the Roman authorities in his role as Bishop of Smyrna. They dragged him to kind of the Roman auditorium, Colosseum style of kind of wicked entertainment that they had, and the Roman authorities didn't want to kill an old man and make a scene of him, so they begged him, listen, Polycarp, just give your worship to Caesar. If you just curse the name of Christ, I mean, it's just words, right? Just curse the name of Christ, honor Caesar, make a sacrifice to him, and we'll spare your life. And the early church records that Polycarp responded like this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then they tied him to a stake and burned him for his faith. There's all sorts of legends that develop after that, that the flame doesn't actually catch Polycarp, that it kind of envelops him like a sail and he ultimately needs to be speared. Some people say it smelled like burning bread as he was being martyred. Legend kind of begins to spread because legend always spreads about heroes. But in the early church, the martyr, the martyr test was the test of faithfulness. And that's the question we have to wrestle with today. And I know that's intense this morning as we walk into this place and the world and the country that we live in to ask you this question, but this text is begging it. Are you willing to die for your faith? Are you willing to be faithful unto Christ all the way to death? That's not a question you and I in our context are face a lot, but here's what I want to argue this morning. The entire Christian life is one of death. Paul says in the New Testament that he has been crucified with Christ. The Christian life is a death to yourself, and it's not a one-time death, and it's not just a physical death at the end of your life. It is a daily dying over and over again. So this morning, are you willing to die for your faith? That is the litmus test. If these seven churches are a litmus test for the church in every age and generation, that's the test this morning. Are you willing to die for your faith? Well, this morning as we walk through this text, I want to give us a compelling vision for how we do that, whether or not we face persecution in our context or not. So here's our main idea this morning as we look at this. Christ calls us to enduring faithfulness in suffering by looking to Him who has overcome death. 
Christ calls us to enduring faithfulness and suffering by looking to Him who has overcome death. But let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Lord, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. I pray right now that, Holy Spirit, You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are softened to respond to the good news of the gospel. Lord, we know that this world is marked by suffering and hardship. Things here are not the way they are supposed to be. So as all of us feel the weight of that, either right now or we're about to feel the weight of that, we're either in a season of suffering or about to be in a season of suffering, may you strengthen our faith. Give us a vision for what faithful endurance looks like. And in all of that, Jesus, may we see both your glory and your grace, both your kingly reality ruling over all things and your kindness to sinners and sufferers like us. And may that kindness draw us to repentance and faith. Accomplish your good work now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we look at these uh, few verses, I want to see three movements. I want to look at the form, the source, and the end of suffering. The form, the source, and the end of suffering. Uh, Let's begin with the form. If you were with us last week, we opened with Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, and we talked through the typical pattern that is in these seven letters to the seven churches. They begin with an identification of the risen Lord Jesus, some aspect of His glory that was revealed back in chapter 1. It's followed by a commendation and an encouragement, then a confrontation and a challenge or a rebuke from the Lord Jesus, and then finally it ends with a promise to those who conquer by faith and endure till the end. However, and it's always convenient for the pastor to give you the pattern and break it the next week, but that's what we're doing, okay? In two instances, here in Smyrna and then in the church in Philadelphia, there is no word of rebuke. There is no word of correction from the Lord Jesus. And the reason why in both cases I think becomes clear from the text The reason why is that there is an intensity to the suffering and the persecution that those two churches were facing. Here in Smyrna specifically, they were likely a very small church that was maybe on the brink of being snuffed out under the mighty fist of Rome. So let's go back in the text and read as we consider the form of their suffering. Let's pick it back up in verse 9. The resurrected Lord Jesus says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. All right, let's pause there. I think there's four marks to the suffering that this church is going through that jump out from this text. The first mark is this, it's tribulation there in verse 9. Now that word tribulation, literally in the Greek, it means pressure. It's the idea of being crushed beneath a weight and feeling that. That's the tribulation they're facing. Now, I think we have to understand some of the broader context of what's going on with Rome and the church and Smyrna to appreciate just the weight of that pressure that was upon them. Smyrna was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was a city that was almost completely destroyed in the 6th century, but then was rebuilt in the 3rd century. And Smyrna was known in particular for its deep loyalty to Rome. It was one of the epicenters of the cult of emperor worship that we've been discussing throughout this series in Revelation. 
In the second century, uh, they were the first city, second century BC, they were the first city in the empire to create and dedicate a temple to the goddess Roma. And then later, when the cities throughout Asia Minor were competing for the privilege to host a temple to deify Emperor Tiberius, Smyrna won out over all the other cities in the area. And why did they win out? Because they were thoroughly committed to the Roman Empire and the Roman way of life. And we have to appreciate just how efficient, horrifyingly so, just how efficient Rome was in both instituting and propagating their way of life. If you remember from your history class, the time period in the middle of the Roman Empire was known as the Pax Romana. Remember that? What's that mean? The peace of Rome. But they accomplished this so-called peace by the strategic way in which they conquered their enemies and those that they wanted to bring underneath the umbrella of the Roman Empire. See, when Rome defeated a particular people in an area, rather than taking them into exile and shipping them away, instead, they kept them right there and said, great, now that we've defeated you, guess what? You're a vassal state underneath the Roman Empire. Welcome, you now have the privileges of being part of the Roman Empire. And they would seal this arrangement by a sort of God swap. They would force the people in that area to adopt the worship of some of the gods in the Roman pantheon, and then in turn the Romans kind of tipped their hat a little bit and said, okay, and we'll adopt some of the worship of your local gods. Now that may feel very democratic, and it may feel a little whatever in our kind of weird thinking about the Roman pantheon of gods, but there's a sinister brilliance in that, isn't there? Here's what that means. Here's how one commentator summarized it. The local people who might be tempted to rebel against Rome couldn't pray to their local gods anymore in the hope that somehow they would take on the Romans and win. Why? Because those gods were also prayed to by Rome. Meanwhile, they were demanded to worship some of the Roman gods as well. And the highest sign of your loyalty, what unified a vast and diverse empire by the time of the writing of the book of Revelation was the demand that all citizens worship Caesar as Lord, as God. Worship the emperor as God. So in Smyrna, in places like it, citizens and even travelers and visitors could be required by law to offer incense and sacrifices to the emperor. And not just on special occasions, by the way, sometimes even on demand. And what that created was an inseparable link between the Roman state and religion. And it made it nearly impossible for Christians to fully participate in civic or public life without feeling this pressure. Listen, brothers and sisters, when Jesus says he knows their tribulation, when he knows the pressure they are facing, that is the kind of pressure they were under. At any given moment, just going to the marketplace, they could be asked to stop and worship Caesar as Lord. And if they refused, there were serious consequences. One of those consequences is the second mark, poverty. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Part of their suffering and persecution was economic in nature. Now, there's two words in the Greek for poverty. One uh, is a little more intense than the other, and that's what this word is. Their poverty meant that they were destitute. 
Not just that they were lacking some things they maybe wanted, they were lacking the things they needed. And their poverty was a direct result of their faithfulness to Christ. Because they believed that only Christ was Lord and not Caesar, they began to be viewed with skepticism and excluded from some of the cultural life in Smyrna. Once word got out that this little group of people over here are anti-Rome, it was then difficult for them to buy and sell in the marketplace because nobody wants to buy and sell with someone who's committing treason. It's difficult for them to find employment. They were viewed as untrustworthy. You know, later in Revelation, this is looked at from a different angle. Revelation 13, where it talks about the mark of the beast, come back in like a year and a half when we're in that passage, okay? I don't know what that means right now, but we'll get there. But the mark of the beast, those who do not have the mark of the beast, it says in Revelation 13, we're not allowed to buy or sell. They're saying those who refuse to be allegiant to a kingdom besides Caesar, they're not even allowed to economically participate, and that's exactly what's happening. But notice, notice, the risen glorified Jesus reminds them that though he knows their poverty, they are actually rich. Did you catch that? He says, I know your poverty, but you are actually rich. James 2.5 says this, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The Christians in Smyrna may have been poor in this world, but they were rich in what eternally mattered. They were experiencing poverty and earthly goods, but they were rich in faith. They had nothing materially, but they had treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy and where no thieves will break in and steal. The Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom felt unstoppable, but they were heirs of a kingdom that has no end. So yes, church in Smyrna, you are poor, but you are rich in what really matters. Thirdly, they experience slander. It says it's from those who say they are Jews but are not. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But we know that the early church faced all kinds of slander because they were different and refused to capitulate with the world around them. People viewed them with skepticism and spread all sorts of false accusations. Just some examples, they were accused wrongly of being atheists because they didn't worship the Roman pantheon of gods. They were accused of being in incestual relationships because they treated one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. They were accused of being cannibals because of the way they participated in the Lord's Supper. They were accused of being politically dangerous, just to name a few things they were slandered by. Untrue things were being told and spread about them. And then lastly, as Jesus tells them, they're facing imprisonment. Now, this is not a modern prison, and even modern prisons have things that still can be uh, adjusted for humane conditions, but a Roman prison was somewhere you would never dare be. In many cases, a Roman imprisonment is just a precursor to execution by the states, which is why Jesus urges them, be faithful even unto death. He's almost saying, your imprisonment may lead to your death. Be faithful. Now, let's step back. All of that is the daily reality for the Christians in Smyrna. Can you put yourself in their situation for just a moment? How does that make you feel as you consider Jesus' call to be a disciple? Would you be willing to bear that cost of discipleship? 
Now, I know for us today, if you're anything like me, by the way, I bet you have a hard time with that question, don't you? And that's partially because so much of our life in this world, this part of the world in 2023, and even our faith today is built around the values of comfort and insulation from suffering. Let's just be honest, we are. I love comfort. I like to be comfortable. Anybody else? I don't enjoy suffering. I don't enjoy the feelings that come with that. And that's why I think we need a reminder of maybe some unmet and, un and some wrong expectations. Listen, I think there's a primary implication for us from these words of Jesus to this church. Do not be surprised by trials and suffering. Let's be honest, you and I, when suffering comes in, we're like, what's going on? This is not right. How dare this be happening to me? We may not voice this, but like we, we hear one another's prayer requests, right? We're like, man, this horrible thing happened. Let's just pray and get over with. Like, let's get this thing out of my life, right? We're surprised by it, and we're somewhat offended by it. And the risen Jesus, I think, is inviting us right now to say, don't be surprised. Listen, brothers and sisters, suffering and persecution on account of the word will take many forms, but we should not be surprised when it comes. Jesus was not shy about this, by the way. In John 15, he said, listen, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. If they persecute you, it's because they persecuted me. And 1 Peter 4 says this, Peter, someone who, by the way, uh, fled for his own life and comfort when he could have bore the cost of discipleship the first time, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So how do we not be surprised by suffering? And even more so, how do we actually rejoice in that? Well, to get there, we have to turn to our second point, the source of suffering. There are layers here to the persecution that the church in Smyrna was facing. Let's kind of pull back the layers of the onion one by one, shall we? At the first level, it seems that there is some persecution happening from some of the Jewish people in this city. There's some intense language around this. You probably heard it. Let's read it again in the second half of verse 9. It says, you've experienced the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's worth noting that the first persecution against the Christians we see in the New Testament is not by the Romans, but it's by some of the Jewish people. And let's appreciate why. Christianity is birthed out of Judaism. Christ himself was Jewish. He believed in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament, but he believed that they were all pointing to him. And when the Jewish people said, no, they're not pointing to you, and rejected him as Messiah, it caused a riff. The Jews believed the Christians were blasphemous to worship a man as God. And, of course, the Christians end up seeing people from Judaism come to faith in Christ to join something new. Then all of a sudden, all these Gentiles start joining this church that's using their scriptures, and it just gets complicated. But there's another reason why they may have been doing this in Smyrna. Remember that God swapping that the Romans engaged in? There was one group exempt from that, and that was the Jewish people. You know why they were exempt? When the Romans would encounter a group of uh, Jewish followers, those who were uh, really committed religiously to Judaism, they would say, okay, we're here, we're in charge, let's have that God swap, so show us your God. Where, where is he or she? And the Jews would say, 
well, we don't make statues. We make no graven images. You cannot see Yahweh. And eventually the Romans just got weirded out by this and said, all right, we don't know what's going on with that, but we don't really want any part of it, so you've got your own little protected religious, we'll leave you alone, you leave us alone. And so the Christians, as it's birthed out of Judaism, originally were under that umbrella of being a Jewish offshoot. Well, then the church starts to grow, Gentiles start to be added, and the Jewish people are seeing, ah, this feels dangerous, and they began to turn in the Christians so that they were not persecuted, so they might keep their protected religious status. And that's why Jesus here says that those who claim to be Jews and are not, he's saying those who think they are the people of God but have missed the king of the kingdom are not truly the people of God. Now, he says here that they are a synagogue, literally an assembly of Satan. That's because they reject Jesus as Lord, and anyone that rejects Jesus as Lord is no true assembly. Now, this is not a reason for anti-Semitism. Make that note. John himself is a Jewish man, ethnically, writing this letter, but he is warning these Christians, there will be a temptation for those of you who are Jewish Christians to go back to Judaism, to go back to life in the synagogue, and to avoid the cost of following Christ. At the outer layer, we have the Jewish people turning the Christians into the Romans. But there's another layer, and that's what he's already invoked. They are a synagogue of Satan. It says in the second half of verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Jesus says it is the devil who is instigating their imprisonment to test them. Now, C.S. Lewis, I think, rightly warns in his opening to the screw tape letters that there's two equal and opposite errors that we can make about Satan and devils. One is to discredit them altogether. We're a modern, sophisticated people. After all, we don't believe in fairy tales like that. That's one danger. The other danger is to so obsess and to think that Satan and devils and demons are all powerful and you are always at risk of being attacked and infected by their work. And I think Revelation strikes a note right in the middle. Because listen, throughout Revelation, the devil is a real foe. He's a horrible enemy. He pulls all kinds of deceptive tricks to try and oppose God and his people. And Jesus here says he's going to throw some of you in prison. But at the same time, notice what's happening here. Jesus is telling them exactly what Satan is going to do. Satan and the devil is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Listen, we Christians are theists, not dualists. You know the difference? A dualist says, for eternity past, there's been this epic battle between good and evil that will continue, and one day, hopefully, good wins out in the end. That's not Christianity, brothers and sisters. We are theists. We believe that there is one omnipotent God. There is one all-powerful one, and Satan is merely a created being who has fallen and rebelled. And he will, the book of Revelation tells us, be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. We are theists, not dualists. Now, what does that mean? G.K. Beale, I think, rightly says this. He says, the true saint, listen to this, brothers and sisters, the true saint should not be afraid of the devil's attempts to bring about compromise in the church through persecution. Indeed, Jesus employs the devil's efforts for the purpose of strengthening his people through these tests. Even the work of the devil is used by God for the furtherance of his plan. As the devil's plan at the cross was used by God to bring salvation to the world, 
So the suffering of the Smyrnians will result in blessing and ultimate deliverance for them. That is the final layer of the source of suffering. Though the church in Smyrna is facing trials and persecution and pressure, God is still sovereign. He is on his throne. He is taking what the Jews and the Romans, what the devil meant for evil, and he is turning it for good in his mysterious providence. Now, what's the implication of that? Well, I think it's right there in our text. If that is true, then therefore, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Part of the overwhelming feeling for us when we suffer is an uncertainty and an anxiety about what is to come. And Jesus, the risen glorified Jesus, looks at his people and he says, listen, do not fear. There is nothing happening to you that I am not intimately involved in and aware of. Do not fear. Things are not spiraling out of control. He has promised them and he promises us that suffering will not have the final word. That's where we have to land today, the end of suffering. Let's look at the second half of verse 10 and 11. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus here promises that their suffering and persecution will be brief. He says it will be ten days. And we talked, if you're with us, we set up Revelation, that a lot of the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. I think 10 is likely a symbolic number here. It's meant to be a short but a complete period of time. This is also the exact same amount of time that Daniel and his three friends back in Daniel 1 were tested for their refusal to participate in idolatry ordered by King Nebuchadnezzar. They're to be faithful for 10 days and not mix in to their faith, false idolatrous worship of a king, albeit. It's very, very similar to the situation in Smyrna. And remember, John is steeped in the Old Testament. So he's telling the church, listen, it'll be 10 days. It'll be short, but it will be complete. But he's reminding them, and he's reminding us, our suffering and our tribulation has an expiration date. And in fact, we can rightly say, with sensitivity to the realities of suffering, we can rightly say that all suffering that we face in this life is but for a little while, to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Peter. Or consider Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction Listen, brothers and sisters, you might be in the middle of something right now that does not feel light and it does not feel momentary. Listen to what Paul is saying. For this light momentary affliction is doing what? It is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. All suffering, as horrible as it may be in this life, compared to the eternal weight of glory, is just a little while. And lest we forget, the very one addressing them is already ahead of them in that eternal weight of glory that awaits you and me. 
if the church in Smyrna is to endure faithfully through their suffering, and if we are going to endure faithfully through our suffering, we must look to the one who is already ahead of us, the glorified one of chapter 1 in Revelation, who tells us, don't be surprised and do not fear. So who is that figure? Well, it's verse 8. Let's go back to the beginning. I tricked you. You thought I skipped it. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Christ is the first and the last who reigns over all of history. Whatever the church in Smyrna is facing and whatever we are facing is in the hands of the one who is first and last. And he is the one who died and came to life. Now, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? That's the exact opposite of how we talk about people. Right? If you're reading about someone in the history books, you eventually would start and end with this sentence. Like, they were born in this year, and then they died in this year. Life is the beginning. Birth is the beginning. Death is the end. And when we face intense suffering and hardship, maybe persecution, part of our fear there is that it threatens to bring the perceived end much closer to now. But Christ flips all of that around in the gospel. He has died but then came to life because he's come to life that is truly life. For him, death is just the beginning of that which is truly life. And the same thing is true for all who have put their faith in him. Brothers and sisters, death is not the end, but as we are united to Christ in his death, we will be united with him in his resurrection. Death is just the gateway to real life which is a powerful hope in the midst of suffering right now. Think about it this way. Sometimes good intentioned friends can come up, you and come up to you in a season where you're really suffering and facing hardship, and they can tell you this, listen, I know what you're going through. Now, sometimes they maybe do, and they can powerfully speak into it, but sometimes you might look at them and say, you have no idea what I'm going through. Those words feel empty, don't they? They can ring hollow. And suffering can bring such a sense of isolation along with it. We can very quickly, especially in a world that idolizes comfort, begin to think that our pain and any opposition and any affliction that I face all of a sudden cuts me off from other people because they don't understand what I'm going through. And then it very quickly goes to, well, God also doesn't seem to care because why would I be going through this? And what does it feel? Isolating. It feels lonely. But brothers and sisters... The one who has died, yet come to life, Christ, can truly look at you in your hardships, can truly look at you at your greatest sufferings and tell you, I know what you're going through, and not have it ring empty. I know what you're going through. He has the authority to speak like this because he's been through it all firsthand, even death itself, by means of a sin-bearing Roman cross, and he's come out the other side to tell us what lies behind suffering. He has died and come to life, which is why we must look to him. And he promises us two things, to those who conquer, those who remain faithful unto death, he has promised the crown of life. This is the image of a garland wreath that was awarded to a runner who wins the race. Christ will crown those who endure looking to him with the prize of a wreath of eternal life. And he promises escape from the second death. 
that shows up later in Revelation to speak of judgment and hell away from the presence of God. Revelation tells us, it tells the church in Smyrna, there is a judgment day coming. Wrong and persecution will be judged. It will be dealt with. But for those who are united to Christ by faith, receiving his finished work on your behalf, judgment day is nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear about what lies behind death. As Tim Keller says, the only thing that death does is usher you in to the glories of eternity. So the implication here, if we started with do not be surprised and do not fear, the third implication here is that we can be faithful unto death because Christ knows our suffering firsthand and is with us even through death. So let's end where we started with our new friend Polycarp. Polycarp was willing to die for his faith, even as an old man. But listen to what Eugene Peterson says. Are you willing to die for your faith? And are you willing to give up anything along the way in order to pursue it? Those little deaths that sometimes seem as difficult as the final one, dying to impulses of ambition, of lust, of pride, of security, of comfort. Until we pass the martyr test, we live neither deeply nor widely. Until we are ready to die for Christ, we can't live for him freely, openly, and exuberantly. If we spend all our energies trying to protect our interests, to preserve our safety, and to, to negotiate and compromise with the opposition in order to keep what we have at all costs, we will live meagerly. But if we live at risk, giving up all in witness and commitment and love, we are released from death to live in the power of the resurrection. Are you willing to die for your faith? And are you willing to die those thousand little deaths every single day because to come to Christ is to die but to come to life. It is a death that leads to that which is truly life. So brothers and sisters, this morning, do not be surprised by the fiery trial. Do not fear what is about to happen. Look to the one who has died and has come to life. And if you do not believe that promise, I beg you this morning, there is only one way to escape the second death, and that's to die right now to die in this life over and over again and to find that it leads to life and life eternal. I beg you to see the glorified risen Jesus and turn to him in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the promise that your grip on us is tight. For those who have turned to you in faith, the good work that you have begun, you will carry to completion. So Lord, in the midst of suffering, hardship, persecution, the cost of discipleship, I pray that you would strengthen us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and die with you daily, and follow you in faith. Lord, for those who have a hard time seeing that as being true life, may you open their eyes to that reality, and may you draw them to faith. Lord, and for those who do believe that, encourage us, strengthen us, help us to remain faithful and to endure until the end, as we await your promised return, our blessed day of hope that awaits in the future. But in the meantime, may we 
not idolize comfort. May we not idolize our things. May we not idolize peace and security in our own life, but may we be willing to live open-handedly following you, Christ, wherever it is you've called us, knowing that that's the safest place we could possibly be. Strengthen us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.